Daniel 6. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over, uh, over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We will never find any charge against Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of God, of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the documents so that as the law of the Medes and Persians, it is irre uh, irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house, the windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict? that for 30 days any, any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver them. To deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet rings of the nobles, so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? When Daniel spoke to the king, may the king live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have, not, uh, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king gave, then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel uh, were brought and thrown into the lion's den they, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to, the, wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live in the whole earth, 
May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, let's pray that you would uh, speak to us through this passage today, speak uh, through me, help, uh, yeah, um, preserve me from error, and uh, yeah, would uh, this word and this message, this passage, uh, be an encouragement to us uh, in this time. Amen. All right. Well, welcome to Hallows. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Corey Shirishi. I've been here for about eight years now. Um, Our passage today is a really famous one. It's Daniel chapter 6. It's known as Daniel and the Lion's Den. So when I was uh, taking my introduction to hermeneutics course uh, at seminary a few years ago, I had to write a paper on this passage. So hopefully today's sermon is a little bit less dry than that paper was. Um, But apparently some of you think academic is my style, so I don't know, we'll just see how this goes. Anyway, uh, we've been going through Daniel for the last few weeks now, uh, since Easter, and so far each chapter has kind of been this relatively straightforward uh, story. They're kind of like episodes in a little TV show, right? Everyone is uh, separate, but they're kind of building on the plot of the series as it goes through. And today, um, we're going to highlight, we're going to, yeah, today we're going to highlight the major uh, theme that's been running through the entire book of Daniel, um, and it's God's sovereignty over everything. Right? So before we dive into this passage, uh, we're going to recap the stories that came before. Um, so to kind of continue with that TV episode theme previously in the book of Daniel. In chapter one, uh, God handed the people of Judah over to Babylon, right? And uh, if you remember, Jake, uh, when he uh, preached a sermon on this, he pointed out as throughout that chapter, we see how God, you know, Yahweh, is in control of the events of the exile. Right? So in uh, 1 verse 2, uh, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of God. So it's the Lord handed his people over. Right? And later, when it's talking about Daniel and his friends, it says that God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. Right? So at that point in history, most people would have believed that Babylon's victory over Judah would have meant a victory of Babylon's gods over the God of Israel, Yahweh. Right? But if you've read Deuteronomy, which is the book right before Israel goes into the promised land, God told his people that if they stayed faithful to him, then they would be kept in the land, they would flourish, everything would be great. But if they were unfaithful, then they would be conquered and exiled, right? And for most of their history, which you can read about, like Judges, Samuel, Kings, right, much of Israel was unfaithful to Yahweh, right? Within a few generations of entering the land, they turned away from Yahweh and were worshiping gods like Baal. And by the end of their history, they had a king in Jerusalem who sacrificed his children in the fire and put statues to other gods in Yahweh's temple, 
Right? So after hundreds of years of patience with Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness, right, God followed up on his word. He would exile them. Right? And in this first chapter, what we saw was that the exile is not an example of Yahweh's weakness or powerlessness relative to Babylon's gods, but rather it's an example of God's sovereignty. Even in the midst of his people being taken to exile, it was all according to his plan. So, chapter 2, right? or episode 2. Uh, in chapter 2, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, and the Babylonian magicians could interpret it. But God reveals the vision to Daniel and its meaning, and Daniel breaks out into poetry, saying of God, For wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Right, so not only is God the one who could reveal the dream, but if you remember the content of the dream from that week, it was that after the succession of many kingdoms, God would set up his own kingdom, and that that kingdom would endure forever. So by the end of chapter 2, even Nebuchadnezzar is giving this testimony that your God is indeed God of gods, right? Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Right, so in chapter 2, what we're seeing is that God is sovereign over mysteries. Right? He's sovereign over the future. He's sovereign over the rules of kings and kingdoms. And in chapter 3, there's the three faithful youths, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are thrown into a furnace for not worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's image. And as Nebuchadnezzar throws them in, he asks this question, who is the God who can rescue from my power? And then God saves them from the flames. And later in the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, he answers his own question, saying, there is no other God who is able to save like this. And here we're seeing how Yahweh, the God of Israel, is sovereign over the king's judgment, and he can save those who are faithful to him. Okay. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is warned by a dream to repent or be given the mind of an animal. Right? And this is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants. And to drive home that point, Daniel repeats that phrase as he explains what the dream meant right? and what is about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, it's going to happen until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. And later, Nebuchadnezzar, he praises himself for Babylon's greatness, and the voice from heaven comes and issues the sentence that was promised, saying that he's going to be driven mad until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. This is getting repetitive. <laughs> right, so when, when Nebuchadnezzar finally does repent, right, they mix it up a little bit, um, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? So continuing our theme, right? God is the sovereign ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants. In chapter 5, a new king, Belshazzar, is terrified as this mysterious hand writes on the walls of his palace. And when Daniel interprets that writing on the wall, he retells what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in the previous chapter. And he, he says that phrase that we've heard so many times now. The Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. Because right? we haven't heard that enough, right? So then Daniel goes on to say that Belshazzar had exalted himself against the Most High, 
right, against the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. And this God had weighed Belshazzar, and he found him deficient, right? And that very night, Belshazzar was killed. So before we'd heard and heard how uh, God gives human kingdoms to whoever he wants, we see now that he can also take them away. So a major point in Daniel has been that in spite of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of God's temple at the hands of the Babylonian Empire and the captivity of his people, God is still powerful, right? Uh, He's not only still powerful, but he's actually the most high. He is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, all kingdoms, all people, and everything. So we're about to start episode six in this series. Do you expect a big plot shift? You know, is God suddenly powerless and can't save? No, right? We are right back in the middle of this theme of God's sovereignty, which has been going on through the whole book. And I'm doing this extended recap to just build this habit of reading the Bible in its context, right? So each week you come here and you hear a different sermon, and um, we're, you know, usually applying the text to different areas of your life, right? And it's a little bit different from week to week, and that's important, right? That's a good thing. But it's also important to think about the main theme of the book, right, and what's being consistently driven home in many different ways over and over and over again, right? So if you forget everything else that I say about Daniel in the lion's den, um, you know, for the whole rest of the sermon, which, to be honest, most of you are probably going to do within a couple months anyways, uh, there's one thing I wish you would remember, right? And it's to remember the sovereignty of God, not from this sermon, but from this whole set of sermon series. When it seems like things are out of control, remember that God is in control. I think we've had a lot of hard times in this church um, lately, right? And that's corporately as a group, right? With what happened with Andrew and the split with other expressions. And individually, we've had medical issues, we've had mental health problems, we've had miscarriages, things going wrong. And so when it seems like things are out of control, remember that God is in control. Right? Go back to these stories, think about them, right? Because they might be ancient and happened to people a long time ago, but these are our ancestors in the faith, right? They're about us as a people, right? And how God was in control when it seemed like their world had come to an end and their homes were destroyed and they were carried away to serve a nation that had just killed many of their friends and families. Okay, so that's our review. It's done. We're going to turn to chapter six. So I mentioned that I wrote a paper about this story in my hermeneutics class a while ago. Um, And some of the things that we had discussed in there were like setting, you know, plot, characters, you know, kind of the basics of what the story was. Um, And one of the questions was, who is the protagonist, right? That's the main character. Uh, This chapter is super famous. Everybody knows the story. It's Daniel in the lion's den. So come on, who, this should be easy. Who is the main character? Someone, someone will give an answer. I, I don't know, I, I heard like murmurs, I, I couldn't actually hear it, but is it Daniel? Can you thumbs up? God? Okay, we got some God. All right. Well, yeah, God. Uh, yeah, God, that could work. All right. <laughs> um, all right I was expecting people to say, uh, yeah, it's Daniel, because like his name's in the title, right? But no, that's, that's not actually right. <laughs> um, so if you just take a quick count of who does stuff, uh, you'll find a very different answer. In the first verse, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. Right? 
And then Daniel distinguishes himself, right? So then the, the satraps form a plot, and they go to King Darius. And then King Darius signs an edict. Daniel learns about it, and he prays. And the satraps catch Daniel and go to Darius. And then uh, verse 12, Darius, he answers them. And then Darius is displeased, and Darius tries to rescue Daniel. And Darius gives the order to throw Daniel in the lion's den. Darius calls out for God to rescue Daniel. Darius seals the stone. Darius goes to his palace. Darius can't sleep. Darius goes back to the lion's den. Darius cries, cries out to Daniel. Daniel responds. I think he's on like four, right? And then Darius is overjoyed. Darius throws the accusers in the den, and Darius writes a new decree praising God. Darius dominates the story, right? He is, Darius is the one who's doing everything throughout the whole story. You could almost call the story Darius and the lion's den instead of Daniel and the lion's den. And so maybe you're thinking, well, that's nice, Corey, you know? Is this, but is this fun fact, Corey? Like, why does this matter? Uh, I think it matters because this is scripture, right? And God inspired this text to be written in a particular way, right? And the way that he inspired it, I think, matters, right? This story could have been told from Daniel's perspective. It could have been told, you know, we could go through Daniel's feelings and his emotions that he's thrown into the lion's den and what he's praying and what he's saying, but we don't actually get any of that. Instead, we get what Darius is feeling and what Darius is praying. Um... Right? So if we want to pay, pay attention to what God is doing and what he is trying to communicate to us in this story, I think we should pay attention to exactly how this is written, and I'm hoping that that will give us insight into what the main message is. Yeah. So I'm going to cover this from Darius's point of view, and the first place I want us to focus on is on the decree. Right. Some water. Okay. So, all the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict for 30 days. Um, and anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. Okay, so this decree, it's not Darius's idea, right? But when his advisors, they come to him, they tempt him to exalt himself to the role of a god. And not just any god, right? Because in that era, the idea of many gods is pretty much a given and assumed, right? But he's actually usurping all prayer to all gods, right? So he's actually putting himself in the slot of the most high as the god of gods, the only one that you can pray to for 30 days. And to make that kind of edict, right, Darius has to assume that he actually has the power to accomplish whatever anyone asks from him. And that's a really bold thing to claim, right? At this point, he's a new king, right? He just took over the throne from Belshazzar at the end of the previous chapter. And it, it kind of seems like he's fooled by his own power. He's like a teenager who just got his driver's license, and now he thinks he's the best driver in the world, can go anywhere and drive as fast as he wants, right? Darius has got the keys to the kingdom, and he can do anything he wants. But it's a trap, right? Because as soon as he signs this decree, you know, his wicked advisors accuse Daniel, and immediately Darius realizes exactly how powerless he is. Right? From verse 14, as soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. 
Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. All right, so Darius makes every effort to deliver Daniel, but he can't. And this is really ironic, right? He thought that he had all the power in the world, he could answer every prayer, he could accomplish everything by his will. But now he can't even save his favorite administrator from his own decree. He's stuck. Right? He's been tricked by his own administrators. Right? And I think this is an invitation for us to reflect on what pride can do to us. Right? It can make you think that you have all the power in the world. Right? You, you have all the control, everything is within your fingers, but then one unexpected situation comes up, and you realize you're actually very, very weak. Right? This is exactly what happened to Darius. So what does he do? Well, this foolish pagan king, right, who forbade that anyone petition anyone but himself, he turns and petitions Daniel's God to do what he could not do. Right? So the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. May your God do it, because Darius couldn't. Right? And then Darius goes to his palace, and he spends the night fasting, and he can't sleep. And in the first light of the morning, the king goes to Daniel and pay attention to how he talks about Daniel's God. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? And here Daniel actually speaks for the first time in the whole narrative. And what is it that Daniel says? He says that God saved him. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. Okay, so that, that God found Daniel innocent, I think, is really important, right? Because throughout this story, there's this contrast of laws, right? The administrators try to trap Daniel with something concerning the law of his God, and they do it through the law of the Medes and the Persians. And then they keep repeating how the law of the Medes and Persians, it's irrevocable, it can't be changed. And then it's precisely this law that Darius couldn't change, and yet it's God's judgment of Daniel as innocent that overrules it. Again, showing how God, his law, is greater than the king and the king's law. Right? So the king is overjoyed now to see that God saved Daniel. And they take him out, and indeed, he's unharmed. Right? And as the story wraps up, King Darius issues a new decree that everybody must tremble in fear, not before Darius but before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. All right, do you see we're back in the same theme of God's sovereignty? The main thing going on in the story, it wasn't Daniel's existential crisis as he looks like he's about to die, but it's Darius's crisis as he realizes who it is who actually has the power to save and who is able to answer prayer. God is the one who saves, right? He rescues from the lion's den, and there's no other God who's able to deliver like this. God is the one who endures forever. And it's his law and his kingdom that endures forever and will never be destroyed. He is the most high who is ruler over heaven and earth, and there is no one who can block his hand. Right? And from the whole sermon series, this is one of the main things that you should take away. 
right? There's many, many different ways that you can apply it right, to your life, and we're going to talk about some, right? But the core fundamental concept is that God is in control even in moments when it looks like things are out of control. And I think in all the stories that we've read so far, right, there's moments, you know, where things, you know, things look like they're out of control, you know, but they're all pretty short, right? Uh, this story in particular lasts for like one day, right? One, one night. But starting in chapter 7, we're going to see that there's more visions, and a lot of those visions are going to involve successions of kingdoms that last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? And what I think these stories in the first half of the book are demonstrating, and like these short time frames, is the same as what the second half of the book is going to promise for the whole stretch of human history. So, as we start thinking about how to apply this big idea to ourselves, we're going to take a look at some of the minor characters, right? Because, you know, like, we're all minor characters, right? At least, I don't know. I am. I don't know. Maybe some of you are a bigger deal than me. Anyway, um, here is the idea that I want to put before you. This is all God's world, right? All of history is pointed in the direction that he chooses. What can we do? I think we can control how we fit into God's world. Yeah. And so first, uh, we're going to look at the satraps and administrators. And I'm going to have some water. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. So satraps and administrators, uh, these guys are the antagonists. They're the bad guys, right? And if you don't know what a satrap is, it's just like a government official, right, um, in the Medo persian kingdom, which is you know, what we're in at this point. Um, so how, how are they fitting into God's world? Right? Well, first, they see Daniel is going to be elevated above them. And then out of kind of their envy of that whole situation, they decide they're going to take him out. And the way that they decide to do it is they want to use God and God's law and Daniel's obedience to God as a tool for their own ends. Right? But God doesn't let, this, let them succeed. And I think this is really... Uh, well demonstrated um, in verse 18, uh, actually, in and in, in, there's this, so there's this interesting textual variation in the Greek translation of the book of Daniel. Sorry, this is a nerd for a second, right? And some explanation on, um, like right now, we're reading the English version translated from uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, but there was also a, a Greek version of the text, which was used by the early church because they were Greek speakers, right? Um, and there's a bunch of places where that translation of the text is a little bit loose. Um, and there's this long, complicated topic of how to process all of that, which I just kind of want to sidestep for a second. Um, but this extra sentence, right, in Greek, it actually just points your attention at something that's in the story the whole time, um, but it does it in kind of like a really clear way. So in the, this is verse 18, the middle of the night, while the king can't sleep. And this is what the Greek adds. At that time, the god of Daniel, giving his attention to the situation closed up the mouths of the lion, and they did not harm Daniel. Right, so nothing, nothing shocking there, right? It's mostly all in the story anyways. Uh, but here's the point. The scheme of the antagonist didn't fail because of some combination of bad luck or like weird coincidences or anything like that. Right? It failed because there's a personal God right, who was paying attention to the situation, and he saw what they were doing, and he said, nope. All right. If God wasn't sovereign over the world, right? If God wasn't sovereign over the world, then their plan would have worked, 
right? The king signed the edict, they caught Daniel in the act, and as the story makes so, so, so clear, the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. But God overrode the unchangeable law, right? Because God's hand can't be blocked, right? And he wanted Daniel alive. So in the end, their plan backfired. They tried to get Daniel thrown into the lion's den, and then they ended up there themselves. And this is a really common way that God's judgment plays out in the Bible. For example, in Exodus, Pharaoh, he's worried that the Israelites are going to join an army that fights against him, so he tries to drown all of the baby boys in the river. But God doesn't abandon his people, and so Moses escapes, and later, Pharaoh chases Moses and Israel out with his army, and Pharaoh and his army ends up drowning in the sea. Kind of poetic justice. Right, so as we think, think about ourselves, you know, are there things that you are doing or ways that you are living that oppose what God is doing in the world? And it's kind of a harsh question to ask as we're talking about people being thrown in the lion's den, right? But you know, to be clear, there's a big difference between the way that King Darius opposed God, right, as this fool who didn't realize what he was stepping into. And then when he did realize, he repented, right? He changed, he called out to God, he gave God his proper due, and things kind of worked out for him. But the satraps and the administrators, they knew what they were doing. They knew, and they could have repented at any point in the story up until the point where they couldn't anymore. So in either case, whether you know that you're actively opposing God, or if the Holy Spirit opens up to something and you realize that you were doing it out of foolish ignorance, as long as you're still here, there is an opportunity to repent. Because God is not a fool. He controls all of history, and his hand will not be blocked, but he's also merciful to those who turn and call on him. So, for the other character, Daniel. Uh, In verse 4, Daniel is described as being uh, guilty of no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and there was no negligence or corruption in him. And as you hear that, do you hear kind of this little chiasm? It's this A-B-A pattern, right? It's subtle, but it should draw your focus to the trustworthy, kind of that middle part, right? And at the end of the story, there's, this, there's another one in, in verses 23 to 25, right? So Daniel was first found unharmed, for he trusted in his God, and then those who accused him are harmed, right? So it's A-B-A again, but this time it's with ideas and concepts rather than words, and that's just a common way that Semitic poetry works, right? Um, so maybe those details aren't that interesting to you, right? Um, but the point I'm trying to make is this, right? Daniel is twice described as trustworthy. And in one case, it's connected to his God. And in the other case, it's connected to having a high character and living a righteous life. So if you wanted to rephrase that in the words of James, it would be that Daniel had a faith with works, not a faith without works that was dead. So another point about Daniel. Twice it's mentioned that he prayed three times a day. Last week, George made this comment um, about instead of avoiding or ignoring problems, being engaged while also trusting God. Daniel is doing that. It implies in verse 10 that he's praying towards Jerusalem. And at this point in history, Jerusalem is destroyed. Right? Right? That's why they're in the exile. So 
you know, praying towards the destroyed city, the capital city of your homeland, like that's not ignoring the issues of your people, right? There's actually a reference in that phrase to a prayer that Solomon makes at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. And the hint behind that reference is that Daniel is repentant and he's pursuing God with his whole heart and his whole soul. All right, last observation about Daniel. So in the morning when the king finds him alive, he is twice, again, called a servant of God. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? And so if we take that back to the question I, I asked earlier about how are we fitting into God's world? I think Daniel is doing what he can to line himself up with God. He's living an upright and righteous life, He's seeking God in prayer. He's loyal to God in his service and worship. And amidst of all of these pressures to compromise on all those different points. And I think we can probably identify with a lot of those pressures to compromise on those points. We can feel the pressure to compromise morally. In our culture, that might look like sexual ethics or financial. How we use our money, being selfish or materialistic. Or just a lack of self-control. Right? being impulsive or angry. It can also, you know, we can also feel this pressure to think that all we need to do is operate in the secular world that we see in front of us and then fail to seek God and seek his help in prayer. I think for me personally, this is an area where I compromised for a long time. And I wouldn't even call it like something I struggled with. It was more like I just didn't prioritize it at all to struggle, right? I just kind of thought, well, like, well you know, um, I'm going to do what I can do for myself and people around me, and God's going to do what he's going to do. And I think what went wrong was I turned this intellectual ascent of uh, God's sovereignty into a sort of fatalism where I didn't think my prayer could make like a real difference. Um, it's just kind of all predestined, right? And so while I'm up here and I'm preaching this sermon on God's sovereignty, I just want to highlight that's not an appropriate way to respond. You can't absolve yourself of a responsibility to participate in what God is doing in the world. So God's reign, it's certain, but there's also this open invitation for you to participate through your prayers and your service and your whole life, participating in God's rule. This is actually the thing that God told us to do in the Garden of Eden, right, at the beginning of the Bible, and it's also the thing that we're pictured doing at the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, Right? God wants mankind to be his partners. Right? And so what that means is that God's sovereignty, you know, it includes, you know, it allows us, it allows us to pray. It, it makes how we pray and how we act towards him matter. It doesn't mean, God's sovereignty doesn't mean that everything you do is pointless. Right? And practically speaking, right, this is an area where you struggle too. Um, you know, in prayers, like not a uh, prayer is a central component of this whole life of faith, right? If this whole life of participation with God, right? So if, if you are negligent in prayer, like I was, right, and you don't know where to start, my personal suggestion is try learning the Lord's Prayer and saying it three times a day, kind of like Daniel did, right? Um, you could do it before your meals or something like that. Build that habit. And let that just be a start to grow from. And that's my personal suggestion. 
Um, other people would probably make other suggestions. That's fine. I just, I don't think I'm in left field, you know, like making that as a suggestion. Um, so, um, God, he pays attention to what's happening in the world. Uh, what's happening to you, what you're doing, what's happening to you. And that's even when we're in exile or when it feels like things are out of control, right? Or you're being pressured to compromise, right? And in this story of Daniel, he actually responds to Daniel's faithfulness by vindicating him, right? And so I think if you're faithful to God, right, then that God who is in control of all of history, he will vindicate you, right? Even if, like Daniel, that vindication happens after going down to the pit, right? And I'm intentional this time in calling it the pit rather than uh, the lion's den, right? And the reason is actually that the lion's, the word for lion's den and the word for uh, like lion's pit is the same word, right? And there's a few translations of the Bible in English that actually use uh, lion's pit instead of lion's den. But why, why does that matter? Why do I, I use that word? Um, so if you're familiar with the Psalms or uh, if you've read for instance, Ezekiel 32, you might pick up on this idea uh, that the word pit can also be used to describe the place of the dead. Right? It can be used the underworld, the grave, the land of death. Right? That's kind of what the pit means, like metaphorically or as an image. Right? So in this metaphorical or typological sense, this isn't just a story where God saves Daniel from dying in the lion's den. It's actually an image you know, where God is saving Daniel from death itself, right? There's this image of God taking Daniel out of the land of death, right? That he was dead and he came back to life. And then you can even take this image just a little bit further. So if you study the way that God is portrayed in the Old Testament, you'll see that there's a strange figure who is God, but is also distinct from God at the same time. And often this figure goes by the name the angel of the Lord, Right? And this is part of the Old Testament origins of what becomes uh, Trinitarian theology in the New Testament and Christian doctrine, right? That angel of the Lord, who is God but is distinct from God, incarnates as the man Jesus, right? Jesus, who is God but is distinct from God the Father, right? So that's the relationship, right? And so if you have that perspective about the angel of the Lord, and you have that in your head, and then you also have this idea of the pit as the image of death, and you can read what Daniel says in verse 22 about his experience in the pit. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. God sent his angel. Sent him where? Where Daniel was. In the pit. Right? In the land of death. And so I think what you, you can see here in this picture, right? it's not only God raising Daniel from the pit of death, but it's actually a foreshadowing of the father sending the son to actually join him in death and bring him out unharmed. And this is exactly what Jesus did for all of us. Jesus was sent from the father to go down to the pit of death and he defeated death so that we will rise again bodily. And then we can participate in his kingdom that will never be destroyed and in his dominion, which has no end. And this is the final vindication that we all have to look forward to. If we, like Daniel, put our trust in God and we seek to faithfully serve him while we spend our lives in the exile of this world. So that is the, the final encouragement I want to give you all from this passage. God is in control even when things seem out of control. 
So you and I, we can live faithfully in whatever circumstances come our way. And so we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this passage, um, but more importantly, we thank you for what this passage points to and what it means, and that you, you and your love for us, you sent your son to come to die for us, uh, to save us from death so that we could rise again and by your spirit, uh, we could live and participate with you and your kingdom. I pray uh, that that would be made manifest more and more in our lives, uh, that it would encourage us in the hard times um, that have been going on uh, and in the hard times to come. God, would you be with us? Would you encourage us? Um, Do you forgive us where we fall short um, and lift us up uh, at the end of days to rise and live with you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.